Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased to have with us Professor Robert Crowcroft. Professor Crowcroft is a senior lecturer at the University of Edinburgh. He is currently also a visiting scholar in the history faculty of Cambridge University, and is an associate fellow at the War Studies Department at King's College in London. And today we are speaking about his book, The End is Nigh, British Politics, Power, and the Road to the Second World War, published by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Professor Crowcroft. Good afternoon, Charles. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Professor, what is the thesis of your book? Okay, well, this book really addresses what is one of the most mythologized and, frankly, culturally resonant episodes of modern history, not only here in Britain, but across the world. And this period and the story of appeasement that it addresses is integral to popular memory and the self-image of not only Britain itself, but perceptions of Britain in the wider world and indeed the broader sort of civilizational story of the West over the last hundred years. Uh, And in September... Uh, which is only a a few weeks away, it will be 80 years since the outbreak of the war. And yet, you know, many of the mythologies associated with the 1930s and 1940s remain just as entrenched as ever um, within British and Western uh, identity. The war remains the closest thing that our civilization has experienced, arguably, to to an apocalyptic event. It was conflict on a planetary scale, And the story of how Britain found itself in the war in the first place, of what happened on the road to war, uh, has interested people for generations. And what I wanted to do through the book was to basically write an old fashioned political thriller, uh, one that would be all the more exciting for the fact that the story is actually true, that explores the deep and dangerous interaction between the struggle for power and political advantage at Westminster during the 1930s, and the the formulation and execution of British strategic policy in an international environment that was increasingly primed to explode. Um, The book draws on a sizable cast of of characters, some of them political icons like Winston Churchill and Neville Chamberlain, but others others as well like Stanley Baldwin, Clement Attlee, Ernest Bevin, and so on and tries to spin a tale of the primacy of political competition and ambition. It looks at not only how foreign policy was made during this period, but even more importantly, how it was used for domestic political advantage. And doing this enables us to to place one of the most mythologized episodes of recent history in an unfamiliar light, one that isn't quite captured in the traditional Churchillian and still undoubtedly uh, compelling 
story of appeasement in which you have heroes and villains, or at least heroes and naive idiots. This is a really a story without heroes uh, and with politicians instead. Uh, and the book is also really, I think, a story of what happens when political competition, which is natural, inevitable, and as, as Machiavelli understood, actually quite healthy for a body politic. But it's really a story of what happens when political competition gets out of hand and the struggle to rule the system overwhelms the system. That's an important part of what happened during the 1930s. It's not the whole story, but it's an important component of it. And the result of this, from a British perspective, was the destruction of British world power, as well as the advance of a new kind of democratic settlement at home in the, in the post-war era. So what I wanted to do through the end is now was to, to bring this, this, this kind of perspective to the attention of a, of a newer generation of readers, particularly as we uh, approach the, uh, the 80th anniversary. How does your view of British politics in the period in question differ, if at all, from that of Maurice Cowling in his book, The Impact of Hitler? Yeah, Cowling uh, is, um, for, for the uh, for, uh, listeners who don't know, Cowling was very famous and accomplished political historian based at Peterhouse College in Cambridge during the 1960s and 1970s. And he wrote a, uh, a trilogy of books uh, on the high politics of British democracy. The third volume was The Impact of Hitler. Um, where the end is now is different is, is in a number of respects. Firstly, it's simply more up to date in terms of, of the uh, where the research is. Uh, Cowling was writing at a time when the so-called revisionist literature, which tried to offer a more nuanced uh, and often sympathetic perspective and appeasement, was still uh, being gestated. Since then, we've gone through post-revisionist phases and so on. So, so the landscape is, is a little bit different. But also, frankly, the, 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 the big difference between the two books uh, is that I tend I tried to write this for a, a larger audience than Cowling's book, which is written really for a very narrow audience of specialist academics. And also, frankly, of Cowling's trilogy, The Impact of Hitler uh, is the weakest in terms of how it's written and so on. It's, it's not a particularly accessible book, which is a real shame because this sort of approach, which has also been uh, developed as well by Professor John Charmley in a couple of books uh, exploring both Chamberlain and Churchill. This kind of perspective uh, has, I think, significant uh, traction with a broader audience. Um, and actually, Charmley did, did did much more than uh, than Cowling to sort of bring this perspective to the to, to wider attention. But that but but that itself was in the 1980s and 1990s. So I think that it's time, um, particularly for a for a newer generation of, of people who who had no direct experience of the war, people who only know it really through the experiences of grandparents increasingly now, um, but yet have sort of uh, absorbed this cultural baggage. Uh, it seems to me that this is a is the right sort of time to think about how to about how to do that. Um, and I mean, the, w one thing that strikes me is, is that this book being sort of wound up, actually being incredibly timely in terms of contemporary politics. We have Britain's exit from the European Union and so on. And over the last couple of years, you know, we've been living through the gravest political crisis in Britain since the war. We've seen politicians of all dispositions and parties behave in some frankly cynical ways at a moment where government has had to grapple with uh, very big strategic questions, calculations of party advantage, maneuvering against rivals and so on. All these things have been to the fore. 
and have had just as great an impact on shaping policy, uh, shaping policy rather, as objective assessments of the national interest. Um, but, the, but, the, but the fact is that this quite cynical way of thinking about politics which when Cowling was writing was quite controversial. Actually, in the current climate, more and more people are just accustomed to seeing politicians and politics in this way. On both sides of the Atlantic, it's simply part and parcel of popular culture. Um, for example, I often say to people, you know, what are two of the most um, well-received and popular television shows of the last 10 years? Well, you have Game of Thrones and House of Cards both about politics and both adopt this very, very cynical uh, way of thinking about about political behavior, which is, of course, exaggerated. But nevertheless, I think there's a sort of cultural resonance with this way of, uh, of thinking about what, what it is that politicians get up to. What explains, in your opinion, the um, ascendancy of uh, the conservative party in the interwar period? And uh, Stanley Baldwin's uh, ascendancy within the Conservative Party in the interwar period, in his case, well, up to 1937. Yeah, well, that, that's a very, very interesting question, um, because a new democratic order had been established in Britain in the aftermath of the First World War. Uh, you have a major extension of the franchise to cover all adult males and then adult women as well. Um, and in this kind of environment, there's tremendous uncertainty as to exactly what democratic politics will actually look like. What will it entail? What will government spend its time doing? Um, people on the left had long uh, been tremendously enthusiastic about this, thinking that, well, if they have a situation of a universal adult franchise, uh, then they'll be able to easily shift politics in the direction of socialism in some quite decisive ways. And people on the right had shared those exact same fears. There'd been an anxiety um, that conservatism could essentially be obliterated in a mass democracy. You also have a country here that's deeply polarized on class and industrial lines. And of course, you have the broader international context where you have the breakdown of the social uh, sorry, the social and political order across much of Europe in the aftermath of the First World War. And yet, far from this being disastrous for the conservatives, actually the conservatives are in power for 18 of the 21 years of peace. They win general election after general election. And the interwar era is about as close to a period of one party hegemony as genuinely multi party systems tend to permit. So there's a mystery here. And I think a, a big part of the explanation is Stanley Baldwin himself. Baldwin really wrote the blueprint uh, in Britain, I think, for how democratic politics in the modern form was to be conducted. Baldwin was a prolific public speaker. He went up and down the country uh, speaking to all kinds of audiences all the time. He addressed people uh, on newsreels, which were shown in cinemas. Millions upon millions of people went to the cinema every week. And in the intermission between the films, they would see the prime minister looking into a camera uh, talking about the issues of the day. He was the first prime minister to speak to the public over the radio. And his style of politics was to stress supposedly ubiquitous and nonpartisan national values, patriotism, moderation, common sense and so on. And the hope was that this would sort of glue together a very divided and uncertain country. Um, in policy terms, he found his appeal on a degree of economic caution, 
coupled to very important measures of social reform and an expansion of the welfare state. And there was a general ethos of political inclusivity. And this proved a winning combination for the conservatives, uh, despite the uh, despite the um, the turmoil of the interwar era with you know the general strike, uh, the uh, repeated financial crises and so on. The conservatives contrary to most people's expectations, not least their own, were tremendously successful. And I think Baldwin was the was the key to that. Um, his style of leadership of how to communicate with the public, his insistence on framing what we would now call an, a narrative in national rather than sectional terms was extraordinarily successful. In policy terms, uh, Baldwin was not, as he put it, one of life's workers. Uh, he was relatively relaxed. He, uh, he, he was a master of delegation. Um, he was particularly adept at, de- at delegating domestic policy details to Neville Chamberlain, who was in charge of social reform during the 1920s and then Chancellor of the Exchequer during the 1930s. And the two men actually made an extraordinarily um, an extraordinarily successful team. How does uh, Winston Churchill uh, fit into the Baldwinian ascendancy in the period after 1924, which means, of course, after he rejoins the Conservative Party and becomes Chancellor of the Exchequer in Baldwin's second government? Yeah. So Churchill had uh, started off as a conservative uh, more than 20 years before. He'd uh, run away, essentially, to the Liberal Party and then rejoined the Conservatives in 24. Um, The reason uh, why Baldwin is keen to get Churchill back into the Conservative Party is because of this um, ethos of political inclusivity and trying to appeal to former Liberal voters. And Churchill is one of the big liberal politicians in the country, is an obvious target. Uh, Baldwin appoints him as Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, which is much to the surprise of much of the Conservative Party. They view Churchill as a traitor. Uh, Churchill essentially abandoned the Conservative Party two decades beforehand, uh, and the divisions between Churchill and the Conservatives were very deep, bitter. There was a tremendous amount of rancor. Uh, and yet Churchill, you know, he's a guy with soaring ambition who wants to ultimately become prime minister. So his sort of ideological place within um, within Baldwinian conservatism is that he, Churchill, as a, as a former liberal, appeals to, to precisely the kind of broad base that, that Baldwin is attempting to construct. But politically, there are there are uh, real difficulties uh, in terms of Churchill's position within the Conservative Party, really throughout this whole period. What was the connection between uh, Churchill's opposition to the India Act uh, and uh, his later opposition to appeasement? Yeah, um, well, there's, there's a common origin, actually. Uh, and well, there are two origins. The first is that Churchill was by temperament and by disposition, a man inclined towards conflict. You know, he was an imperialist. Uh, he wasn't, as many people will say, a warmonger. Um, but at the same time, he certainly didn't shy away from great power competition. And he knew that that often entailed military conflict. Um, so when confronted with um, attempts to reform British rule in India in ways that he thought would ultimately prove fatal, to the integrity of the British Empire 
and when confronted with uh, with changes in the balance of power in Europe, Churchill's inclination was always to fight, was always to resist. But there's a second origin as well, uh, which is ambition. Uh, in the case of the uh, the India crisis, Baldwin, Churchill recognised that Baldwin's policy of pursuing liberal constitutional reform in India was extraordinarily unpopular with conservative MPs and potentially offered a route uh, through which Baldwin could be overthrown and discredited. It might be a device through which Churchill could build bridges with people who, who actively disliked him uh, and become their champion on a big imperial issue. So really between 1929 and 1931, uh, there was a sense, this was when the Conservatives were in opposition briefly, there was a sense that, that Churchill might be able to mobilise sufficient support within the Conservative Party to overthrow Baldwin and hopefully become Conservative leader himself. That's certainly what, what Churchill was aiming at. After 1931, when it became clear that, um, the, that Baldwin wouldn't be going anywhere, this is a, a situation in which the Conservatives have won an absolutely massive landslide majority in 1931. They've almost killed the Labour Party. Uh, they have a huge majority uh, in the, the so-called national government with uh, defectors from the Labour Party. Uh, so it's quite clear that at this point, Baldwin will not be removed as Conservative leader. And in this environment between 31 and 35, Churchill wages a very bitter uh, conflict. Um, within the party, essentially a civil war that, that uh, ostensibly is about resisting liberal constitutional reform in India, but it, in many respects is actually about rebuilding his position within the Conservative Party and trying to cause such a storm that Baldwin will feel compelled to bring him back into the, the cabinet in a senior role. So between about 31 and 35, uh, Churchill is attempting to rebuild his position uh, within the Conservative Party. He takes advantage of the sheer unpopularity of Indian reform within the Conservative Party. Um, he uses the rhetoric of sort of blood and thunder, conflict, the empire in danger, the language of treason and so on. Uh, all this sort of emotive rhetoric to try and uh, make himself an indispensable figure for Baldwin. Ultimately, uh, this this precipitates a huge civil war within the Conservative Party, but it's one in which Churchill is ultimately defeated. Indian reform is passed in 1935. Uh, Baldwin has no intention of bringing this troublemaker back into government. Uh, Churchill, though, he he learns an important lesson from the India debacle, which is that um, you have to apply yourself to matters of detail. During the during the the six year crisis within the party over India, Churchill was extremely violent, frankly, in the kind of rhetoric he deployed. But he was also very vague uh, on detail. Um, he was offered an opportunity to uh, join a parliamentary select committee to examine the issue of India reform. He refused to do so because he prepared to he preferred to make violent speeches. His evidence, his submission of oral evidence to the committee was a bit of a disaster in which it became clear that in spite of the fact that he was leading the campaign against Indian reform, he actually knew very little detail. This was tremendously embarrassing to him and did him few favours. And so he learned an important lesson there. And then in the aftermath of the, uh, the, the defeat over India, when 
um, the when attention turns towards European geopolitics once again, Churchill learns a lesson and immerses himself in a way that he hadn't done hitherto in the minute details of, for example, German rearmament statistics, German industrial outputs and so on. And so uh, India actually serves an important uh, educational uh, purpose for Churchill, uh, with the result that his opposition to appeasement um, uh, is is regarded as being more credible. There's no doubt, though, that even over over appeasement, uh, what he's hoping to do uh, is to compel Baldwin and then after 1937, Neville Chamberlain to bring him back into government. He's not at this point thinking about becoming prime minister. Frankly, as a man who, who's in the wilderness with, with very little credibility, the idea of becoming prime minister is simply fantastic. What he's attempting to do is to use these issues to rebuild his position and make his way back within the within the conservative uh, leadership group. Was it not the case that uh, uh, Churchill's um, muted uh, reaction to the Hoare Laval Pact of uh, late 1935 was um, that he at that point was endeavoring to um, make amends and try to get back into uh, Baldwin's cabinet? Yes, exactly. Um, that that is a, a very important point, and I think captures the spirit of the book. Um, Time and again, not only for Churchill, but for uh, but for the rest of the characters in the book, um, there are moments where uh, they have a choice to make. Do they act in their own best political interests or do they follow through on the their, their inclinations uh, or their professed inclinations about national policy? And time and again, you'll find that there's a, shall we say, a striking correlation. I'm maybe being cynical here, but there's a striking correlation between the policy position that people argue for and their personal interest. So, for example, you know, earlier on in the in the Abyssinia crisis, Churchill was essentially all out for war, if necessary, with Mussolini uh, over Abyssinia. Um, you know, he wanted to send in the Royal Navy uh, and, if necessary, take out the Italian Navy. He was uh, absolutely confident and rightly so that the British could do that uh, if they were so inclined. Um, but at the crucial moment, it, 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 he starts to hear whispers, uh, particularly in the aftermath of the uh, of the passage of the Government of India bill a few months before, that Baldwin might be willing to, to let bygones be bygones and bring him back into the government. And therefore, he essentially uh, zips his mouth closed uh, and is rather, shall we say, circumspect in his criticism of the policy. And I think that sort of captures... Um, um, the extent to which policy was uh, often subordinated uh, to, 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 to self-interest. Um, the reality is that, that, that there's a deep and dialectical relationship between the struggle for power and influence at Westminster and the question of what to do about the international situation. Particularly from 1935 onwards, British high politics was about foreign policy and to a large degree, the formulation of British foreign policy was influenced by high politics at home. Strategy, defense, empire, these were omnipresent themes in political competition. And politicians uh, chose to use these issues for political purposes, to stake a claim to power, to undermine rivals. Intrigue is a constant. Policy problems are converted into political weapons. And 
foreign policy essentially becomes a hunting ground for politicians to bolster their positions. Uh, and, you know, myth, myth makers uh, and historians have often presented this in a less sceptical light. But actually, contemporaries, as far as I can see, discern the truth. You know, if, if you start going through the correspondence and the diaries from this period, you can quite easily see that politicians conceptualize uh, foreign policy in terms of, or at least partly in terms of, and in important respects in terms of jockeying for position, parrying the thrusts of their adversaries, looking out for opportunities for advantage, maneuver, counter maneuver and so on. And when politicians are weighing up the sort of issues uh, of the day and the decisions to be taken, they're thinking about them not only in terms of strategy, but the personal political capital that the issues might be made to yield. Uh, and that I think is an important and um, almost universal uh, tendency throughout this period. You do not have to see you. You seem not to have a very high opinion of uh, Anthony Eden. Why not? Well, Eden's problem uh, was that um, he uh, essentially wanted to become and was widely thought of as a guy who could replace Baldwin as the great symbol of liberal conservatism. Um, he was much younger than most of the conservative leadership group. Uh, he was thought to have his finger on the pulse of, of popular culture in a way that older conservatives did not. And uh, many people within the conservative hierarchy, not least Baldwin himself and Chamberlain, of course, who, who was uh, uh, the, the sort of designated heir apparent. Uh, a lot of people within the conservative party hierarchy assumed that essentially Eden was the future. And the result of this was that during his period as foreign secretary, um, he had a curious aversion uh, to um, to taking a, a firm line in foreign policy, particularly in, in issues on issues like Germany. Uh, but, but in other areas, uh, he would adopt a very strident approach. The best example of this would be uh, Mussolini and Abyssinia. Uh, he essentially adopted a position that was contrary to the, the policy of his own government. He was a man who, who liked to distance himself from his own from his own policies, really for domestic political advantage. Uh, and the result was uh, uh, a sort of a schizophrenic policy at times. Eden, I think, captures the problems uh, which I alluded to earlier, where the competition to rule the political system overwhelms the system itself. Eden thought first and foremost about domestic political advantage. And his image, I think that's a key thing. He had an image of a, a sort of uh, uh, a liberal conservative who stood for the League of Nations and, liber and uh, liberal internationalism. And, uh, and the result was that um, he ultimately wasn't a very successful foreign secretary. Eden, I think, captures many of the um, the, uh, the the political problems during this era. Uh, in the aftermath of the First World War, of course, you have the, the creation of the League of Nations and moves towards collective security. And these kind of things become an article of faith in, in interwar Britain. Eden exemplifies this. Uh, he articulates it better than, than anyone. But actually, uh, the problem with this sort of liberal view of the world was that it was frequently uh, detached from reality. It didn't capture the fact that states tend to behave in their own interests, that you have a harsh and indeed Hobbesian world 
of competition between states uh, and the sort of liberal worldview uh, where you where you could hopefully develop this international architecture of collaboration was simply for the birds. It wasn't realistic. Uh, and the ascendancy of this language within public debate about policy all the way through down to 1939 uh, was tremendously restrictive because it meant that politicians of all stripes, irrespective of whether they were formulating the policies of appeasement or whether they were criticizing them from the opposition from bench or from the government backbenchers in the House of Commons, the ascendancy of this language meant that politicians lacked a language in which they could tell the public the truth about the reality of the international situation and the kinds of challenges that Britain faced. Eden uh, is is the best single embodiment of those challenges and the failure of the British political system to devise a response. Uh, when you say that Baldwin et Ali had the same quote, conceptual framework to the dictators, unquote, that they applied to the problem of India. What do you mean exactly? Yeah. Okay, so in India, uh, when they were dealing with India, people like Baldwin, Halifax, or or Irwin, as he was at the time, um, and Samuel Hoare, they looked at India, and they looked at Gandhi and the rest of the Indian nationalists, and they thought, okay, what we essentially have here are nationalists who are attempting to dismantle the empire, um, but it may be that we can actually just buy them off with some negotiated concessions. We need to establish what their what their objectives are. We need to identify who are the extremists and who are the moderates, and we marginalize the extremists and we work with the moderates. This is a sort of uh, you know classic approach to diplomacy and indeed imperial problems. And one of the interesting things is that many of the people who were involved in formulating India policy at the end of the 1920s and the beginning of the 1930s were then involved in addressing uh, the the problems of the dictators in the mid and late 1930s. So, again, there's a common sort of conceptual toolkit, which is to try and establish their demands, not, not what they say their demands are, but their actual demands in hopes that they're more moderate. Try and. Uh, identify who the key factions are within the German and Italian governments who are reasonable and the people who are uh, are unreasonable and try to outmaneuver the latter uh, and see if you can do a deal with them. So while modern sensibilities will um, recoil at the idea of viewing Gandhi and the Indian nationalists in the same way, in the same light as as the as the European dictators. Nevertheless, there is, I think, an important intellectual continuity here uh, and, and also a continuity of personnel in the sense that you know, many of the many of the leaders who dealt with India then had to deal with uh, with the dictators a few years later. You seem to imply that uh, Pierre Flandin and the French, Pierre Flandin being the French foreign minister in yep. uh, early ni- 1936, were prepared to act with military force over Hitler's occupation of the Rhineland in March 1936. But surely yeah. most of the available scholarship um, shows fairly well that Flandre and the French had no actual plans to act militarily at that time. Well, what you have here, I think, and I, I think that captures an important point, which is that essentially the French want the British to sort this out for them. 
During the interwar era, one of the major challenges confronting British diplomacy is that the British are putting the position and allow themselves to be putting the position uh, of the sort of policemen of the world. And this, frankly, creates a sort of dependency culture on the part of many major states. France is, is one of them, where there's an expectation that Britain will be the one to solve the problems or, or at the very least to sort of take the lead. And this ultimately, I think, does not serve British interests uh, particularly, particularly effectively. Um, go back to 1864. Uh, the Earl of Derby warned that the great risk in foreign affairs was that Britain as a secure island nation, a wealthy great power with a sort of liberal parliamentary system where emotional public debate about foreign policy could have distorting effects. The Earl of Derby warned that the great risk was that Britain could find itself adopting a, a policy of what he called meddlum muddle in which politicians wouldn't be able to resist the urge to get involved in international difficulties. They'd feel a need to do something, yet they, were also, yet, yet they would also be, be, be unsure of, of what to do uh, and would find themselves in the position of having to sort of take the lead all the time. This was precisely what happened in the 1920s and the 1930s. Uh, and when you go back to the Rhineland, the British... Um, uh, well, there's a famous story of Eden getting a taxi uh, and heading to the Foreign Office uh, when he hears of the occupation of the Rhineland. He asks the, the taxi driver um, what he thinks of it. And the taxi driver famously says, well, the Germans can do what they like, in, what they like in their own backyard. And that sort of captures the, the public aversion uh, to, to a tough foreign policy. Um, and this is a problem that, that Britain finds itself. Because on the one hand, there's a commitment to a liberal international architecture of collective security, of being a policeman. Uh, and yet there's a, a lack of public and political will to do it, uh, to bear the cost, to bear the burdens, to run the risks, frankly, uh, of this kind of policy. Uh, and the Rhineland and so many of the other episodes uh, of the 30s capture the problems with the ascendancy of that of that 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 liberal language. And the uh, and the, the the lack of um, the lack of willpower to actually deliver it. Am I correct in assuming that you believe, and you are not being ironical, that Sir Thomas Inskip was a better choice as Minister of Defense Coordination than Churchill? Um, <laughs> well, it, it, politically, that was a very uh, bad decision. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, it was it was greeted at the time as being, frankly, bonkers. Um, you know, people said, what the hell is going on here? Churchill had, uh, you know, as part of his great campaign to get himself brought back into the cabinet in a prominent role. This was what he'd been. This was what he'd been aiming at. Um, but actually, uh, you know, if you, if you start to look at many of the details of, of Churchill's positions on uh, on defense matters in the 1930s, I think we can all be glad that he wasn't in the position uh, that he wanted to be in during the 1930s. Churchill, for example, famously opposed the government's decision to switch the emphasis in aircraft production from bombers, which are an offensive weapon, to fighters, uh, which, of course, were a primarily defensive weapon. Um, the thinking on Churchill's part was that we need to have a large bomber force to strike Germany and bomb them to smithereens and deter them from attacking us. Uh, the rationale for a shift to a, 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 a 
an emphasis on fighters was that if we can deny uh, enemy bombers the command of the air over Britain, uh, then we won't lose the war. Bear in mind, this is an environment in which people in the 1930s very much think of uh, aerial warfare with bombing from planes in the same way that we think of nuclear warfare today. There was a real fear that um, mass attacks by bombers would very quickly bring civilization to its knees. Now, of course, we know from the experience of the Second World War that that didn't happen and it took uh, uh, half a decade or more uh, to, to have that effect. And even then, there are, there are serious questions about whether or not um, about whether or not strategic bombing was actually all that effective in, in achieving its goals. So across the board, many of Churchill's own inclinations about defense policy were actually, uh, um, well, perfectly defensible, uh, were actually, I think, with hindsight, problematic. Uh, Churchill was, uh, in, in his own terms, uh, in, a, in a stronger position, still being outside the government, still, still having the freedom and the leeway to criticize the government. Uh, and then, of course, he cashes in his chips in a big way in 1939. But yes, actually bringing, him in, bringing Churchill into power earlier um, could actually have, have had some, some negative consequences for Britain's ability to, to hold out in 1940. Um, if Churchill hadn't had the Spitfires in 1940, uh, then, then Britain wouldn't, wouldn't have won the Battle of Britain. You state that from the late spring of 1937, uh, Neville Chamberlain was, quote, the central figure in the remainder of this unfolding drama, unquote. Yeah. How exactly did Chamberlain's version of appeasement differ from, say, that of Eden's or the Foreign Office or, for that matter, Baldwin's? Yeah. Well, that's a very important question, actually. And across the board, um, and this is true of many of the, the critics of appeasement as well, the, the substantive differences in terms of the strategies that they articulate are usually are usually quite quite limited. Um, even Churchill, for example, you know, for all the violence of his rhetoric, actually, if you begin to sort of pr probe uh, what he advocated, it's usually not uh, a great distance from what Chamberlain was actually doing. What was important about Chamberlain was that he had this temperamental disposition in which he really believed that he could solve more or less any problem. He believed that he could through through sheer hard work and the application of willpower, bend policy problems to his will. He'd always believed that throughout his career. He was a sort of quite arrogant and conceited man. Um, and he and he believed that um, he could solve the problems of the world, essentially, and probably then cash in the chips with a big general election victory in either 1939 or 1940. Chamberlain, throughout his premiership, was temperamentally unable to walk away from Eastern and Central Europe. This was a part of the world that was essentially unsustainable in its current form. The, the borders that had been set up in the aftermath of the First World War were objectionable to too many local actors. Uh, you had a massive power vacuum in the aftermath of the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, this was a part of the world in which war was probably inevitable, unfortunately. And the two obvious local great powers, Germany and the Soviet Union, uh, 
occupying opposite flanks of this part of the world were clearly going to get drawn in to this conflict. This was not a part of the world that was really a vital strategic interest for Britain. Chamberlain, and you can actually see this in some of his, his uh, some of the letters to his sisters. On one level, Chamberlain actually understands this. He, he understands that this is not a part of the world that is a British interest. And he understands that the situation in, in the area is unsustainable. Uh, and it really doesn't serve British interests to be continually imposing themselves between essentially um, Germany and the Soviet Union in strategic terms. And yet temperamentally, he's unable to walk away because, as I said, his temperament is that uh, he can solve any problem. Uh, and so he immerses himself time and again in the minutiae of these problems. Uh, the result is that uh, the Soviet Union uh, are encouraged to uh, allow Britain to address problems in their strategic backyard. Germany comes to view Britain as a as an immediate strategic threat. And the result is a catastrophic failure of diplomacy. Um, not, I think, attributable to the fact that, that Chamberlain is naive, uh, although he certainly is to some degree about the about the Germans uh, and Hitler specifically. Um, but his temperamental inability to walk away. And, and that's something which I think sort of recurs throughout the book, that on the one hand, intellectually, he understands that this is not really in the British interest. But in but personally, he feels it's impossible to walk away. He just can't accept the fact that this is a problem he can't solve. And, and there's, a, there's, there's a political background as well. Churchill, other, criti other critics uh, of the government on the backbenches in the House of Commons, as well as the Labour Party, create a domestic political environment in which it's actually impossible uh, to walk away, uh, even if Chamberlain were inclined to do so, which he isn't. The, the endless rhetoric about uh, British honour being at stake, um, the balance of power, the League of Nations, collective security, uh, the urge to do something. Um, again, there's that 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 that, that meddle and muddle tendency that the Earl of Derby had warned about in 1864. Uh, all of these things whip up a climate in which it's, it's it's essentially impossible for Chamberlain to adopt any other policy than the one he he actually pursues. Now, in fact, you do not actually um, regard as correct the revisionist defense of Chamberlain's uh, policy at the time of the Munich crisis? Well, the interesting thing about the revisionist literature, and I am temperamentally inclined towards it in many respects, uh, the revisionist literature, when it was sort of, you know, created in the 70s, uh, these were really the first generation of historians to, have, to actually have access to the, doc to the, to the documentation. Uh, they looked at at the, the problems that were presented to themselves. They looked at the way in which uh, politicians understood them, uh, policymakers uh, understood the world. And they sort of, you know, the revisionist tendency within the literature essentially argued that the revisionists, uh, sorry, that the, that the policymakers didn't really have much choice in the end. Uh, and ultimately their policy sort of bought time as well for rearmament and to broker a, a greater public consensus uh, should war become should war become necessary. Um, the the so-called post-revisionists who have um, 
sort of reasserted in some ways that traditional Churchillian critique of, of appeasement as being naive, idiotic and even cowardly. Uh, these people, it seems to me, have made a, a fair point, which is essentially to say that, OK, the, the archival documents might say that this is how these people saw the world. And indeed, it is how they saw the world. But that's not necessarily an accurate, accurate reflection of what the world was like. Other decisions were possible. Other other postures in foreign policy were, were, were possible. And I would I would endorse that where I would differ from the post revisionists uh, is that while I absolutely agree that the the traditional Churchillian uh, strategy is defensible uh, and has much to recommend it. I sort of also tend to take the view that that British interests may have been served more effectively by uh, by standing back from from Eastern and Central Europe, uh, at, at, at least to a very great extent. You seem to imply that the mini revolution in British foreign policy in March and April 1939 was primarily due to domestic political pressure yes. on, on Chamberlain. But is it not the fact that uh, many scholars, I'm thinking of Simon Newman, David Kaiser, or for that matter, Zara Steiner, would posit the change was equally, if not more, the result of diplomatic international pressures on the UK and, and France, to lesser extent France, after the German occupation of the remainder of Czechoslovakia or Czechia? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Uh, it, it sort of depends, I, I suppose, on on uh, on where you, on just how you interpret the um, on how you interpret the uh, the problem from from a political perspective. Um, Halifax, the, the foreign secretary, um, who was an arch appeaser, uh, just like Chamberlain. Indeed, uh, when it ultimately came to war, uh, he lacked the same stomach for a fight that Chamberlain displayed. But in spite of the fact that he was an archer Pisa, by the time you get to uh, early 1939, Halifax is conscious of the fact that the conservatives domestic political ascendancy is beginning to erode and is eroding badly. They still have a huge majority uh, after the 1935 general election. But there's another election due either in 1939 or 1940. And there's a perception that the government's policy is driving away the old liberal vote uh, towards the Labour Party. And that liberal vote had been the key thing in Baldwin's ability to win general elections. Uh, the fact that the, the, the liberal vote had overwhelmingly gone to the Conservatives was a key thing in domestic conservative political ascendancy. And in this kind of environment, Halifax recognises, as do other people as well, that it's imperative that the the narrative essentially around British foreign policy be changed, that the, that the policy be made to look tougher uh, in order to shore up the government's position at home. Now, there's no doubt that Halifax, uh, you know, as a as a uh, as an adept strategic thinker, is also thinking about the, the diplomatic benefits of this. Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying for a moment that this is, is purely uh, a question of domestic political calculation. But nevertheless, that's there. It's to the fore in his mind. Uh, so with the extensions of the guarantees to Poland and Romania, the national government are essentially able to uh, change the narrative around the policy, or brief, briefly at least, 
uh, and, and, and look much tougher. And, and there are obvious domestic political incentives for doing so. You state that it was a mistake for the UK to not allow Germany and the Soviet Union to come to blows with each other in the late 19th. But was it not the thinking of the Foreign Office, um, was and their thinking being that any such, the victor of any such conflict would be the master of the European continent, and thus a much greater threat to France and the UK? Yes, um, but what I would say is that the Foreign Office, I think, are... Uh, as, as they are often want to do, uh, are looking at this in the in the wrong way. Uh, the fact is that a more cunning British strategy during the 1930s could have turned the Eurasian landmass into a deadly quagmire for those states with revisionist aspirations, Germany, Italy and the Soviet Union. And the key to achieving that, I think, would have been a narrower foreign policy, one aimed at breaking out of the tight corner in which Britain found itself and thus decisively altering the rules and the parameters of the of the strategic game. Britain had, as we discussed a few minutes ago, essentially been, re been repeatedly imposing itself in Eastern Europe between Germany and the USSR. This did Stalin plenty of favours. It enabled him to essentially pass the book for his own security to a very large degree uh, to Britain. Um, I think you could say that... Um, that Stalin was actually the principal beneficiary of British foreign policy in the period after uh, after 1935. Um, and um, so essentially a, a policy of disengaging from Central and Eastern Europe, of not uh, allowing other states to be dependent on Britain, of not being the policeman, would, would in structural terms simply have compelled the USSR and Germany to come to grips with one another much earlier. Uh, you know, these states were already on a collision course. Their, their regimes revile one another. They're, they're in geographical proximity to one another. Uh, and if Britain had stood back from the role of playing a sort of ineffectual diplomatic mediator in Eastern Europe, this would have upended the entire international dynamics. Stalin would have no longer been able to pass the book for his security to London. Um, the Kremlin in such an environment would not have been able to set such an absurd price for cooperation as they attempted to set in 1939, which is essentially where they wanted to be able to occupy Eastern Europe or significant chunks of it and have Britain and France committed by treaty to defend the, uh, the borders of the Soviet empire from Germany. Uh, if Britain had adopted a different posture, Britain rather than the USSR would have been the, the state to be courted. And, and pursued, um, you know, Stalin was in a very dangerous geopolitical position and he knew it. Um, Germany was gearing up for a bid to dominate Eastern Europe and Stalin feared eventually conquer the Soviet Union itself. Meanwhile, in Asia, Japan was very worried about the growing power of the USSR. That was one of the reasons why they, why the Japanese were, uh, attempting to conquer China. Um, Britain had advantages through its status as an island empire uh, that other states lacked. Um, I mean, just look at just look at a map of the world. The USSR was threatened by Germany on one flank and Japan on the other. Uh, Germany was menaced by the USSR on one flank and France on the other. And while it's absolutely true that the maps reveal the dilemmas of defending Britain's imperial archipelago, uh, 
the problems of cartography pose still greater problems and acute dilemmas for others. British policymakers essentially failed to surmount the, the, the intellectual barrier and, and, and allowed themselves to be put in the position of playing the policeman in an unstable and unsustainable region of the world. Stalin had tasked his ambassador to London with the responsibility for, in the ambassador's phrase, getting the British to be the ones to bang their fists on the table with Hitler. And British foreign policy had ultimately created the space in which that could happen. The essence of strategy, the essence of strategy is to seek control over the political behavior of an enemy. That is the entire point of strategy. Um, Britain had not only failed to achieve that through its foreign policy, but arguably, I would I would suggest, never created the conditions in which it, in which it would become a serious possibility. Um, and therefore, that's why I, I sort of tend to take the view that um, that a different strategy of disengaging from Central and Eastern Europe in the early 1930s, a narrower foreign policy in which the British identify a sort of. Uh, a, a small number of core priorities, Western Europe, the sea lanes, the empire and so on, the importance of which was emphasized to all relevant parties, underpinned by a resolve to act with violence if necessary. All of these things would have would have made Britain a more formidable enemy and a more attractive partner um, than was the case. So the British may well, of course, have, have found themselves fighting on the side of the Soviet Union, but would arguably have done so from a uh, from, from a from a different from a different position. Now, of course, when we're thinking about sort of geopolitical counterfactuals in this way, uh, we are engaging in 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 the uh, in the, the difficult exercise of, of um, trying to work out what might have happened and speculate what could have happened in particular cases. But the fact is, when we're thinking about strategy and we and we are critiquing strategy, this is a necessary exercise, and it seems it's difficult for me to believe. That another policy could have produced worse results than the than the uh, than the one that, that was ultimately followed. Uh, Chamberlain's decision to uh, go to war in September 1939 yes. uh, with Germany over Poland was that more a case of primate uh, politik or primate inimpolitik? Yeah. Well, when we when we get to the point in the summer of 39, Chamberlain's Domestic political position is uh, is very vulnerable. Um, the collapse of the Munich Agreement with Hitler over Czechoslovakia essentially cut away all the remaining ground under Chamberlain's feet, and he simply could not afford uh, to be embarrassed again. If he was to survive, if the government was to survive, um, it, it it would become necessary. Ultimately, he he recognised uh, to fight, uh, but at the same time. Um, there's there's also the 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 uh, the personal issue as well. Again, the temperamental issue. Chamberlain had absolutely had enough of Hitler on a personal level. He now detested Hitler. Hitler, in his mind, had lied to him and had, had betrayed Neville Chamberlain one too many times. And, you know, when war actually broke out, when he declared war, Chamberlain was quite clear that. Although he hoped that, um, that there wouldn't be um, a conflict on the scale of the First World War. Nevertheless, he was clear during that first eight month phony war that peace could only be negotiated if Hitler was removed from power. 
whether a coup d'etat or or whatever. So on the one hand, there's a sort of, you know, there's the, the political calculation where he is uh, thinking about how how the cabinet can survive. And it, it's simply intolerable, really, politically in the summer of 1939 to allow uh, and absorb yet another humiliation. Um, but there's the, the again, there's the personal temperamental dimension here as well. Um, he had enough of Hitler. And, and I think that that is absolutely key in uh, in not only the decision to declare war, but also his his repeated refusal to engage with peace feelers from Hitler after the declaration of war. Chamberlain is very clear that 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 um, there can't be um, peace while Hitler is still in power. There's a wonderful little anecdote from a cabinet meeting um, in late 1939 where um, they're discussing peace feelers from Hitler. And Chamberlain says, yes, we are not indulging this in the slightest. And he orders that the government announce that they are preparing for a three year war. So far from uh, embracing the peace feelers, he says, you know, we'll announce that we're gearing up for a, for a war that will last for, for at least three years. And yet one of the observers in the cabinet meeting records in his diary that after he'd said that, Chamberlain put his head on the desk and kept it there for about 10 minutes. That, I think, captures the the inner turmoil uh, which had uh, always played such an important part in in determining Chamberlain's policies. Why was Neville Chamberlain a failure as a wartime prime minister? Well, that is a very, very interesting and important question. It seems to me to be entirely reasonable. And again, we're engaging in counterfactuals, but it's an important exercise, so we'll do it anyway. It seems to me to be entirely reasonable to believe that if the British and French military leadership had been more effective, if they'd been smarter, frankly, in how they uh, responded to um, Hitler's attack in the West, in the spring of 1940, that um, Chamberlain could have uh, been perceived by historians as not necessarily a military genius, but but um, or, or, or sorry, not necessarily a genius as a war leader, but, but certainly not a disaster, because there was no reason why France should collapse. There was no reason why Britain and France should prove unable to hold the line in France and the low countries. And if that had been the case, if they had been able to block the uh, the German advance, uh, there was a real possibility that the German regime would have collapsed, um, that the military key sections of which had always thought Hitler was a lunatic and had been looking for various excuses and opportunities to remove him. Uh, they knew that, that in a prolonged war with Britain and France, Germany would, would be defeated. Uh, there's every possibility that in that kind of environment, Hitler would have been removed. Uh, and in such a case, I suspect that history may have viewed Chamberlain in quite different ways as a man who uh, fought an important and necessary war, but prevented it from becoming a First World War-esque bloodbath through a more restrained posture. And yet that didn't happen. Uh, and ultimately, that's not Chamberlain's fault. It's a fault of the military leaders. Uh, John Charmley, one of the revisionist historians I mentioned earlier on, 
uh, rather amusingly quipped that Chamberlain's problem was that he couldn't treat the generals in the same way that Stalin could, which is just shoot them in order to spur their successors to uh, to 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 improved efforts. Um, so Chamberlain's um, failures as a military leader, I think, have to be qualified by the fact that others, uh, the military hierarchy, were ultimately to, to blame for battlefield disaster. But, but there are important failures as a military, oh, sorry, as a war leader. Um, he lacked the sort of dynamism necessary to energize the country. Uh, when he spoke to the public over the radio, um, one observer quipped that it sounded like uh, an undertaker addressing uh, a meeting at, at the funeral parlor. Uh, so he lacked the sort of dynamism Obviously possessed by, by Chamber, sorry, by Churchill, but, but, but Lloyd George as well, who'd led Britain through the First World War. So he lacked a sort of public energy, I think, uh, that may have enabled him to transcend various difficulties in the, in, in the way that Churchill was able to do, uh, after 1940. Um, but ultimately I think the military disaster is one that, that we can't blame Chamberlain for. We can blame Chamberlain for a heck of a lot in his policy. Uh, whether or not you you want to adopt my approach or the more traditional and I think absolutely tenable Churchillian interpretation of appeasement, we can blame Chamberlain for a lot, um, but not necessarily for the uh, for the military debacle of the spring of 1940. Why did uh, Churchill become prime minister in May of 1940, even though um, Lord Halifax was the first choice preference? of all the key political players, the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, Whitehall, Chamberlain himself, as well as the King. Yes, this is a real political enigma, actually. How is it that Churchill, um, a man who is not popular within the Conservative Party, very much the second choice successor uh, in the eyes of the Labour Party, a man who is not well liked in Whitehall and and essentially engenders tremendous suspicion within the political establishment. How is it that, that he becomes prime minister when there's immense support for Halifax taking over? And that is actually a very difficult question. It seems all the evidence suggests that Halifax actually didn't want to become prime minister in 1940. Whether that's because he thought that Churchill would prove impossible to control, even if Halifax was prime minister uh, and would simply undermine him, whether it's because he calculated that Churchill was simply the better person for the job or whether, again, there may be a more cynical calculation, which some people have put forward, that, that Halifax uh, wanted to allow Churchill to take over, uh, expecting him to be a disastrous prime minister and probably to only last a few months. And at that point, Halifax would be able to come in with Churchill completely discredited um, we don't actually know. But what is clear is that uh, Halifax uh, rebuts every attempt to offer him the crown. Uh, he, he talks in his diary about how the idea of becoming prime minister gives him a stomachache, probably literally because he had an ulcer from stress. Uh, there's one uh, famous in instance where uh, a couple of people go to, go to see Halifax at the Foreign Office uh, to try and persuade him to be prime minister. He knows they're coming and he, and he essentially slips out of the back door and goes to the dentist complaining of a toothache. He doesn't want to be prime minister. And in the crucial uh, in the crucial meeting in Chamberlain's office in 
1940, where they're discussing the succession once it's clear in Chamberlain's mind that he has to go. Uh, Chamberlain attempts to rig the succession for Halifax, you know, because he doesn't want Churchill to have it. Uh, and the way he attempts to to rig it is that he he asks he poses a question to Churchill, and he says, "I'm sure, Winston, that you wouldn't have, that you would agree that it'll be absolutely fine for." Uh, someone in the House of Lords to still become prime minister in the democratic age, uh, that, you know, being not being a member of the House of Commons wouldn't be an obstacle that would prevent Halifax from becoming uh, prime minister. And Churchill says nothing. Churchill literally refuses to answer the question. He just stares out of the window, according to his memoirs. He probably exaggerates the length of the awkward silence that results. Uh, but in the end, sort of, you know, Halifax cracks and, and indicates that he would be willing to serve under under Churchill. And then Churchill says, OK, uh, thanks very much. And that's essentially the end of the matter. Interestingly, one of Chamberlain's closest allies, uh, uh, a man named Sir Kingsley Wood, uh, who'd been uh, one of Chamberlain's sort of political protégés, I guess you, you would describe him, uh, throughout the 1920s and 1930s, had uh, had lunch with Churchill earlier in the day and advised Churchill that when he was asked to serve under Halifax to not say anything at all. I suspect that that uh, Chamberlain, who didn't realize that Wood had thrown his lot in with Churchill, uh, I suspect that Chamberlain may have told his old friend Wood how he proposed to handle Churchill. And then Wood went went to uh, to leak this news to 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 Winston. But it, but it's a remarkable episode, quite how. The guy who uh, has all the support to become prime minister doesn't end up as prime minister. Uh, it, it's it's a very, very strange story. But that's politics. Uh, I suppose you can say the ultimate uh, counterfactual question, and it's something that you did not discuss in your book. It's a, it's a three or four weeks after your book ends um, occurs is the following. If Halifax had become prime minister, would have the UK have made a different decision in the last week of May 1940 to fight on after it already was apparent that France would probably be knocked out of the war? That's a very interesting question and a very difficult one to answer. I'm tempted to say, yes, that, that the policy would have been very different because ultimately, uh, Halifax was willing to entertain, at least explore the possibility of negotiation with Hitler as it became clear that France was collapsing. Uh, he wanted to ensure that the British could retain their independence. Uh, they could get the British army, which at that point was trapped in France. This is before the evacuation from Dunkirk. Uh, he wanted to ensure that they could get the British army home uh, and ensure the independence of the British Isles. Um, and this was used uh, to uh, this became a sort of point of contention within the cabinet during the, during those crucial days prior to the evacuation from Dunkirk, um, which were captured in the uh, in the recent feature film starring uh, Gary Oldman uh, as Churchill, The Darkest Hour. But I'm not too sure that Halifax actually would have caved in uh, and done a deal with Hitler. He may have done. He may well have done. But actually what Halifax was attempting to do was to engage in uh, exploratory discussions to see what terms would be available. He was absolutely adamant from the outset that if, if terms that were unacceptable 
were the only terms that were offered, then Britain would fight on. Um, that's a very difficult question. We don't know the answer. What is absolutely true is that for people like Churchill, uh, sort of temperamentally inclined towards, um, towards conflict, um, to begin with, this was simply anathema. This was not a viable policy. Uh, and of course, if you wanted to be a cynic, you, you could point out that uh, Churchill had just become prime minister on a platform of continuing the war. He couldn't very well capitulate to Hitler a few weeks later. Um, but to do so would have been completely inconsistent with his uh, most deeply held uh, personal uh, inclinations anyway. Would it be true to say that from your perspective, the problem with British foreign policy in the 1930s as well as the proposed alternatives to that policy by Churchill, Amory, or if you want to go to the Labour Party, Hugh Dalton, was that it was not realpolitik enough in terms of evaluating British interests in Europe. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the fact is that in the 1930s, Britain is repeatedly, ineffectually imposing itself in uh, international political problems where there is no direct British national interest. Uh, and they're doing this because they think they have to do this as the policemen of the world and to shore up the liberal international order and so on. But the reality is that the liberal international order was dead on arrival uh, at the end of the First World War. British global power remained unique. Britain was an empire on a planetary scale. She remained a commercial titan, an industrial giant the banker and merchant to much of the world. Britain possessed the largest deep sea navy on Earth, one that was able to exercise both regional and oceanic supremacy. By the outbreak of war, Britain's air defences were the most sophisticated on the planet. The stopping power of the English Channel inhibited the projection of armies from the continent of Europe onto British soil. The economy had borne the burden of this massive rearmament program from 1934 onwards and could ultimately be scaled up further as was the case during the war. Britain enjoys important allies. France, Britain's nearest neighbour, is another one of the great powers. The United States was deeply sympathetic, though, of course, at this point, not yet engaged. And the British Empire itself essentially amounted to a permanent military alliance, possessing highly integrated armed forces with standardisation of equipment and training and so on, operating from a global network of bases. So Britain in the 1930s is still the number one power in the international system. And it seems to me that the British policymakers play their hands uh, very, very badly. And the result is the dissolution of British power in the Second World War. Uh, and I find it difficult to believe that, a, that, a, that a, a different approach to policy would have yielded worse results. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? It's that even in moments of acute national emergency and crisis, politicians will still be politicians. They will, hopefully, um, act like statesmen as well uh, and act in the national interest as far as possible. But the reality is that the nature of politics as a profession incentivizes and indeed necessitates certain kinds of behavior. Politics is a highly ritualized form of activity. It's a profession. Uh, politicians think in terms of maneuver and counter maneuver. Uh, and all decisions of any consequence have to be contested in politics if politicians 
and to stand out. So even on something as grave as this, as appeasement and, and a world that is slipping towards another war, politicians will still behave as politicians. Now, that isn't necessarily to suggest that politicians are all liars and, and so on. It's, it's actually much more subtle than that. But it's that it's that politics necessitates a certain kind of behavior. And uh, until we uh, accept that, um, we'll always be dismayed and surprised when they uh, when they let us down. I would like to thank you much, Professor Krokoft, for being so kind as to speak with us today. Thank you very much. This is uh, Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you again, Professor. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure.